Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Roz Chast, whose latest book is called Going Into Town, A Love Letter to New York. This is the 10th book. Roz is a regular artist contributor to... The New Yorker. Notice I said artist, not cartoonist. The cartoonist is good. And a lot of her work is funny, and a lot of it is also autobiographical. It means that you allow yourself to move between humor and something more serious, though there's a lot of humor in your work. Let's go back a little bit before we get to going into town, a love letter to New York. Had you always been an artist? Had you been drawing since you were a little girl? Yeah, yeah, since I was a little kid. I can remember drawing when I was three or four. You wound up going to Rhode Island School of Design wanting to be a painter, is that correct? Well, I went there wanting to draw cartoons, but it was sort of beat out of me. When I was in school in the 70s, mid-70s, cartooning was not thought of in the way that it is today. I think that it was, especially at RISD, it was just not a serious enough art kind of thing to do. And I was living with painters. You know, no teachers were really interested in cartooning. And I I don't know, I just felt like I felt sort of bad about wanting to be a cartoonist. When the few times where I dared to show my cartoons to teachers, they were so uninterested that eventually I sort of stopped doing them. I was living with painters and I thought, well, okay, I'm going to try being a painter. And, you know, I was not very good painter, nor was I really terribly interested in being a painter. I wanted to be a cartoonist, which eventually, by my senior year, I just uh, I graduated with a BFA in painting, but I was starting to draw cartoons sort of secretly. <laughs> and they were mostly funny single panel? No, they were like multi-panel, like, but they were funny. They were like, that's what I liked. I liked drawings that made me laugh, you know. How did you hook up with The New Yorker? It was sort of strange. I was uh, in New York... I had graduated from school, went back to Brooklyn to live with, with my parents, and then moved into Manhattan. And I was starting to sell my cartoons to places like the National Lampoon and the Village Voice. I thought sort of, I really should try the New Yorker. They're not going to buy anything from me, but they use cartoons, and I am a cartoonist, and I need to sell cartoons to other places besides The Voice and The Lampoon. And my dream was to be a cartoonist for The Village Voice. I thought that's, you know, it was Jules Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer and yeah. all of that. But I found out when their drop-off day was, and I dropped off a portfolio of cartoons. You know, the drop-off day, that's when people who submit, you know, they're not staff cartoonists. They just submit stuff over the transom, pretty much. And I dropped my stuff off. I had, you know, like 60 cartoons. I just put everything I had into a portfolio and dropped it off and came back the next week expecting to pick it up and with a little rejection note. And I looked inside, and it, there was a note from Lee Lorenz, the art editor at the time. This was in April of 1978, to come back and see him. And I was very surprised, but I did. And 
he told me they were going to buy a cartoon and that I should start coming back every week, which is in some ways what I'm still doing. Do you basically work with the art director or the director of the cartoons? At this point, I submit everything to the cartoon. It, the art director was the cartoon I mean, okay. back in the day. Now there is, you know, because the New Yorker uses other kinds of visual images, They, you know, there's like illustrations, there's photographs and cartoons. And the cartoon editor is just for that. The covers editor does, you know, the, something else. But back in the old days, the art editor, who was Lee Lorenz, did all the art in the magazine. But now I submit to the cartoon editor. And that's Emma Allen. Emma Allen, right. I interviewed Bob Mankoff a couple of years ago. He's terrific. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is there a difference in terms of your work submitting to the new cartoon editor? Not really. Not really. I mean, I do what I do, you know. If there's one thing that hasn't changed, it's this sort of uh, you don't really know what they're going to take. And sometimes I'll do something and I'll think this is a perfect cartoon for them and they will not take it. And they'll, you know, if I'm lucky, they'll take something else. But it might be something I'll think, oh, this is just too weird. They won't take that. But, you know, I want to do it. So, I mean, I just do what I do. If they take it, they take yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Don't, they don't. Exactly. There's nothing else really you can do. And you've done covers, right? Yeah, I've done covers. I've done. A lot of different formats. When you're doing a cover, what do you start with? How does creating a cover for The New Yorker work? Yikes. It's usually like an idea. I think they were all kind of a little bit different. I mean, the last cover I did, I'd gotten sort of obsessed with embroidery. And this kind of really obsessive embroidery, I had learned how to embroider when I was in sixth grade. And uh, I had a teacher that taught the boys and the girls, like, we had to embroider this map of the United States. And for some reason, I got sort of back into it. The New Yorker, an issue was coming up, the Mother's Day. Oh, no, was it the tech? I can't remember whether I heard first. It was the tech issue, and it also happened to be the Mother's Day week, and they coincided. And I had this idea of embroidering. I wanted to embroider a motherboard, you know. And so I Googled you know, what motherboards looked like. I had a vague idea, but I, and I just sort of like cherry picked like parts of different motherboards that looked like they would be fun to embroider. And also I loved the idea, not only like the idea of a motherboard for a tech and a Mother's Day, but also hand embroidery, which is so untech. It's like so slow. It's so completely slow and untech. And that, you know, amused me. So I wound up doing this embroidery, and they photographed it for the tech. And it's an embroidered motherboard. And then it says underneath, like, you know how, like, in old embroideries, they would say, like, mother in that sort of script? Yeah. So this one just says motherboard in that script. So that was very different from normal drawing. Yeah, 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 totally different. But they're all a little bit different. The first cover I sold I had submitted as a cartoon, and Lee Lorenz said, we'd like you to try this as a cover. And so I wound up doing it as a cover. But they all sort of happened in a slightly different way. I don't think of myself as a covers artist. There are people who, you know, the wonderful, you know, Barry Blitt or Mark Ulrichson who lives here. I mean, you know, their work, I love seeing it on the cover. They're really cover artists. And mine is just every once in a while something is works as a cover. Well, Roz Chest, I mean, one of the issues with dealing with a cover as opposed to a regular cartoon or certainly going into town where you're kind of unlimited in how you're going to play it, is that a cover can have a caption. 
No, can't have a caption, but I did a cartoon cover once. It was, again, for a Mother's Day cover. I think it was like nine panels, you know, so you can tell a story on a cover. I try to think of, like, if I have an idea, you know, just to sort of make it visually appealing for the cover rather than, like, oh, this can't be a cover, you know? Like, if I want it to be a cover, how how could it work as a cover? Can it, you know? And, and sometimes it can. Sometimes it can't. Well, Bob you know? Bankoff told me that if he's creating a cartoon, obviously yeah, everybody yeah. does it differently, he'll get the idea, he'll draw it, and then he'll look at the caption and kind of go, well, this may not... How do I change it? What do I do to make it funnier? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's de- definitely... I mean, when I'm working on a cartoon, it goes through like a bunch of iterations, you know, before... I mean, every once in a while, something does happen, boom. You know, I can think of a few cartoons, a handful of cartoons where I've gotten the idea, draw it, boom, done. But mostly, there's a lot of reworking, and I'll look at it, and then, you know, make it funnier, you know, just try to make it funnier. And something like going into town, it looks like, oh, Roz Chass just, you know, just created this. But in point of fact, it's going to take you to do a book like this almost as long as it takes a novelist to write a novel. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a book is a whole different animal because, for me... It can't just be these separate little random bits. It has to sort of make sense as a little bit of a story. You know, when you start out, you know, I mean, I started out in this book and telling you, like, why I did it to begin with, you know, which was was based on a booklet I had made for my daughter when she went to college in New York. And we live in a suburb about an hour and change north of West Connecticut, actually. Oh, right. Yeah, there were no property taxes or low lower property taxes <laughs> back right. then or no state tax. I can't even remember now. But anyway, it was cheaper than Westchester, which is why we moved there. My kids grew up out there, but she was going to school in Manhattan. And we had this conversation before we went where I wanted to check up on her sense of logistics, you know, to see, did she understand the layout of New York, that it was a grid? And she said, what's a grid? And so I, I drew, okay, these are the avenues, these are the streets. So if you want to, if you're on 52nd Street, you want to walk to 56th Street, you walk uptown four blocks. And she actually asked me, what's a block? And it's not like we didn't have sidewalk in the town where we live, but we don't have sidewalk on our street. And people don't refer to blocks in the same way. Well, you were telling me that you grew up in Queens. I grew up in Brooklyn. Block was like, that's yeah. it, you know, a block. But out where I live, where we, where she grew up, we didn't have, it was, people didn't talk about blocks, you know. So I realized that I had to sort of start from the beginning. So I made her this booklet before she went off to college that had just sort of basic information in it, like uh, this is how Manhattan is laid out. It's laid out like a grid. This is the east side. This is the west side. Fifth Avenue divides the east side from the west side. And stuff that guidebooks don't often tell you. It's like guidebooks will tell you, you know, the, the attractions and where to go and where to shop and what museum to go to and what, you know, this uh, go to, I don't know, this store or whatever. Um, go to the, the theater and but they don't tell you the architecture, the underlying architecture. And I felt that because she was going to be living there, I wanted her to know this. I wanted her to know how to buy a MetroCard, how to hail a taxi. You know, this was before Ubers and stuff like that. Just basic information, because I loved the city so much, I wanted her to have a good time there. What year was that? About nine years ago, yeah. So what prompted you to go back and say, hey, I'm going to take this and turn this into uh, a cartoon book? Well, she gave it back to me after four years. 
and it was very well worn. And she said this was really helpful. And my friends used it too because I had taped in, I had scotch taped like a little subway map in there. And I sent it to my agent. I said, do you think that there's a book here? So the original incarnation of this book was going to be just a sort of expanded guide to New York. But as I was writing it, some of my you know, more personal feelings about the city and why I love it so much. Because the book, in some ways, it's really, it could be applied to any city. Like when you when you fall in love with a city, I did not feel that I wanted to keep it all to myself. I mean, I wanted the same way that if I see a movie that I love or watch a show, I want to tell you about it. It's like, oh, see this. This is so great. But it's also about like how to enjoy a city, like the things about New York that make it so special to me. One is that it's a real walking city. Oh, yeah. You That's know? the best thing. It's the best thing. And so I don't know San Francisco or Berkeley, so I couldn't write a book about those cities. But what I wanted to express in it was not so much like go to these, these are my favorite places, but sort of how to approach New York so you will find your own favorite places, you know, and these are the tools that you might need. There's the knife story, which actually originally appeared in The New Yorker. Yeah, right. yeah. So there are little pieces that come from uh, yeah. from other cartoons. Yeah, yeah. You list museums. Yeah. And immediately I thought she left out the Brooklyn Museum, but then I realized, that's oh, Brooklyn. that's in Brooklyn. That's in Brooklyn, yeah. But yeah. there were a couple of museums that I don't know, the Rubin Museum, the New Museum, and the Cooper Hewitt. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're wonderful. The Rubin Museum, I think, I don't want to, guessing it's on 17th Street, but I'm not exactly sure. That focuses mostly on the Eastern art, sort of like more mystical sort mm. of stuff and just fantastic Eastern Indian Chinese wonderful wonderful art Hindu Cooper Hewitt is more like a design museum and the new museum is fantastic that is down on the Bowery and it has a lot of new art and often really interesting really wonderful exhibits when you're working on a book like this how long is the original manuscript do you cut is this pretty much what you submit this is pretty much what I submitted, but the amount of work I generated was probably at least three times as much. But a lot of it, you know, I cut dead ends, sort of. It just seemed like it was going off in some direction I didn't really want it to go off into because I did want it to sort of still be a sort of guide book. But as I said, as I was writing, there was, you know, reasons why I love the city so much. You also, in putting out a book, you don't want to make it too topical, which you can, I guess, right. do with a New Yorker cartoon. Right, right. Oh, that's absolutely true. So you have to be a little bit careful about making sure that a year from now it'll still be okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing with New York is that, yeah, it's always changing, though. So I expect... That some of the things I mentioned maybe well, like the MetroCard thing. I mean, in a couple of years, that will be irrelevant, you know. And when I wrote the book for my daughter originally, there was no such thing as Uber or Lyft or any of those things. Right. Um, I had to put that in after. So, you know, there were definitely things that were adjusted to update. But New York is always updating. I think that's, you know, it's partly why I get so frustrated with people who, you know, are like overly nostalgic about some old version of New York, you wouldn't like it, you know, if it were always the same. It would feel, it wouldn't feel right. What I find it when I go back, which is usually once or twice a year, because that's where my family is, sometimes 
like when my mom was alive and lived out in Floral Park, which is the border of Queens and Nassau, I might or might not, I might make maybe one trip into Manhattan. And if you do that for a couple of years and then go in, it feels as if you're an entirely different universe. It's like things change that way. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, the Upper West Side, I was amazed in some ways at how little it had changed. I mean, yes, 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 it's a lot cleaner. You know, some of the more scuzzy aspects of it had gone away and there are more people. But in some ways, you know, the same stationery store where I used to buy my sketch pads in the 80s, that is still there. The same shoe stores are still there. The same crummy bar is actually still there. I mean, so many places were still there that I was absolutely flabbergasted. So I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Depends where you are, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you know, you head down to 23rd Street and yes. you have things like oh my God. Italy thing. Oh, Italy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is totally different. Yes. Yeah. There's areas where it's changed a lot more. Definitely. Do you use programs to draw or do you always draw with your pen or how does that work? I still draw with a pen on paper. Sometimes, especially with the New Yorker, with my cartoons, when I send them, I make a PDF. And when I send my finishes, you know, if they buy a drawing, we do what's called a finish on it. You know, we take the sketch and then redraw it. And I used to send it, the finished drawing on paper to them, and then they would do whatever Photoshopping needed to be done. But now we we send a, a JPEG. So I work with Photoshop sometimes. And I, I like it. I mean, it's fun. But I still do the original drawing on paper. Uh, what about the coloring? That I use watercolor. And so then when you go in, you might make a little glitch yeah, fixes right, right, or something. Yeah, right, 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 right. Can you actually draw on on a computer if you needed to? I am hoping at some point to get the iPad Pro, which I've tried, which I love. I mean, that is like you can draw on that. I've tried drawing programs, but, you know, I remember when I got a Kindle when they first came out, and I just didn't like it. I did not feel like reading a book. Right. It felt like I'm reading on a machine. I don't like the interface. I don't like reading this like queer kind of colored background with like the blobby letters on. I just hated it. Um, and I gave it to a friend. But when I read a book on my iPad, if I'm tired, sometimes I remember once my hand went up to the top right hand corner to turn the page. And I realized they have gotten me, you know, because some part of my brain thought that I was reading a book. So I feel like that for me is a turning point, like when the difference between drawing on paper and drawing on something, like when I felt when I was trying out my friend's iPad Pro, that was starting to shrink, the difference between the two. And when they get close enough, then I'm there, you know. On the other hand, when you're done with your illustration from hand, you have you, can, the, you, have, you have it. Yes, that you is true. It. That is absolutely true. There's no more originals in that sense. A couple of questions that came up when I was thinking about my interview with Bob Mankoff. He said political humor is really dependent upon your political beliefs. Do you shy away from political humor? I mean, I don't see that much of it in your work. It's more social humor. Yeah, I've done a couple of things. I mean, recently I did, uh, a few weeks ago, I had a cartoon of this Trump's Africa, and Africa was an island. And uh, there were countries like, um, there was, of course, Nambia. There was Nambla. 
There was Zamboni. There was the Belgian Congo. There was Ecuador. Uh, Narnia. Narnia. So there's times where I just get so, like, sputtering with rage and horror that I can't help but draw something about this person. I don't like to say his name, the T person. But I don't think, for me, that rage is something, you know, where the best cartoons, I mean, maybe buried rage, you know, but if the rage is too close to the surface, then I don't think those are the best cartoons. Then I just, you know, it's like screaming. But if it's sort of a little more under the surface. Do you get cartoons from dreams? Every once in a while I do. Yeah. I actually did sell a cartoon, but it hasn't run yet. And it was about going to the doctor and the doctor was very sad, and he told me that he hated to tell me, but I had I had berm, B E R M, and <laughs> and I wound up like doing a story about it, and it was just so odd. It was just like the weirdest dream. And once I had a poem in a dream, but I didn't sell that one. Uh, and it was it was I remember I woke up and I wrote it down because it was so weird, and it was about a guy named Orny L, and when he got mad, he rang a bell. And then there were two other lines I can't I can't remember. But I've I've tried submitting it a couple of times. But yeah, dreams are weird. What I find what strikes me as funny is if I read something, and I read it wrong. Oh yeah. So I guess those must play a role in in some. Probably. Of your... I mean, everything. If it makes me laugh, you know, I'll see if there's a cartoon there. Uh, do you worry about something that makes you laugh and doesn't make anyone else laugh? That's why I have an editor. I try to kind of go with what makes me laugh, and then they make that kind of decision. Pretty much what you have to do, I guess, is just like, just go with whatever the hell is in your mind. If it doesn't work, meh, doesn't matter. If it's funny, that I feel like is interesting to me. If it's something seems funny to me, that's sort of what I do. I'll try to put that down on paper, because making somebody laugh is kind of, you know, funny. But it's true, and sometimes something that makes me laugh doesn't make anybody else laugh at all. Have you ever thought about, say, working comedy? I like being by myself. I mean, book tours are okay. They're good, but I think I'm a little bit of a misanthrope. Roz Chast, I'm friends with Trina Robbins, who's one of the first... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of the first women cartoonists for superhero. When you were first breaking in, the fact that you were a woman... How did that relate to your work? Because I know Trina had to break doors down. Yeah. It's just never been that big of a thing in my head. Maybe it's more for other people. But in my head, I think I was just really trying to think what I thought was funny and get it down on paper. And I'm not saying that to avoid the subject, but I really, I think... You know, I was thinking about this from when I was a little kid, and I remember being like three or four years old, and I just didn't think that much about whether I was a boy or a girl. I was just me, you know, and I still feel that way. I still feel like I don't go around thinking, oh, I'm a woman yet again, you know, or I'm so glad that I'm a woman, you know. I don't, I just think more that I'm me, you know. So I don't know. I don't know. I just didn't really think about it all that much. And it was probably, it was a little weird, you know, when I went in at first. And But I, there were so many other problems. You know, I was younger than most people. 
and my stuff was so much weirder than so many other. They were like it was a constellation of situations of problems. So being female was only one of like a whole constellation of troubles. <laughs> well, when you when you think about those folks that influenced you to the greatest degree, who were they? I can tell you the stuff that I love. Charles Adams was probably the first cartoonist I fell in big time love with. Mad Magazine, the underground cartoonists like R. Crumb. And I swear to God, I have papers that I wrote when I was in sixth grade where I signed my name R. Chast. So it has nothing to do. Because I've been asked, well, was that like an homage to R. Crumb? It's like, no, no, I swear to God, please. You know, I don't even care if you believe me. But like, yeah, I've started, signed my name R. Chast since I was a kid. Just anything that I love probably goes into the pot. You know, writers, artists, cartoonists. I was just looking at the website, and I found a couple of very, very funny cartoons. One was Pigeon Little. Oh, Pigeon Little. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just curious, when you're creating something like that, are there always origin stories, or are they more like, oh, this is funny? It's mostly, oh, this is funny. There's occasionally a cartoon that I do where I, like when I do my show, I can tell you, I can pinpoint where the idea came from. Like I have a cartoon called When Moms Dance, and that's a kid doing her homework, and the mom comes in and she's doing like a mom dance, and the kid looks up and says, stop, you're hurting me. And that actually came from when my daughter was around 16, and she was doing her homework in the living room, and she was listening to some like hip-hop or something. And uh, I wanted to see whether she was paying attention. So I kind of came in doing this little kind of like sexy mom dance. And she looked up and she said, Mom, stop. You're hurting me. And that became a cartoon. But mostly it's really I'm like fooling around. I have some vague idea in my head and, or a specific idea and I'm drawing it up. And I, you know, I don't know. You were in The Simpsons? Yeah, yeah. How did that come about? They uh, asked me to do a voice, and the script was Lisa and Marge did a comic together called Sad Girl, and then they wind up going to a comics convention, and my character was the moderator of a panel that was Alison Bechtel and Marjan Satrapi. I did get to yell at a crowd and say, Silence! Years ago, I was talking with the late Nora Ephron, and she said that in her work, Nothing was off limits, especially family. Do you do you feel the same way? I do to a certain extent. I mean, one of my very favorite quotes comes from this Polish poet, Czesław Milos. I hope I'm saying his name right. And it's, uh, when a writer is born into a family, the family is finished. Yeah, I mean, I try not to make it super specific, especially, you know, with my kids. If it's something specifically they said, I will ask permission, you know, like with the remark my daughter said, you know, maybe because they're my children. But sometimes I do think that like when you are a writer, that's the main thing, you know, and then you can sort of do with that what you want. You can be like this sensitive or insensitive. You can be an asshole about it and just kind of be like really mean or you can kind of couch it in like a million terms. But everything is on the table. Everything is material. If something is funny, I'm going to use it. What about curse words? Oh, I swear. I'm a potty mouth. Um, the New Yorker, I did, I think I got the first, I think maybe I had the first use of the word bitch in a cartoon, which seems so mild now today. But I don't have an, any issue with curse words. I mean, I rather like them, in fact. How far in advance 
does a cartoon come before it runs? Oh, it varies so much. I mean, like the Trump's Africa cartoon ran this a few days after he talked about Nambia. Uh, so that was, they call it an A issue, you know, they, where they want it almost overnight. You know, we're buying this. Could you draw it and then send us a JPEG of it? Boom, done. But sometimes there might be something that's in the bank for years. I have cartoons that they bought like 10 years ago. That haven't run yet. That haven't run yet. Yeah, so well, it varies. Well, the, the, um, the Trump one, you just contacted them and said, I have this idea? The way it works is we, we all, there's like about 40 artists under contract, and we submit a group of cartoons every week. For some reason, it's called The Batch. And so all of us, we submit this group of sketches. And at this point, it's all people send them in, you know, over uh, email. If they want one, you know, then they let you know, usually by the end of the week, or in the case of that, where they wanted it right away so they could put it in the next week's issue, I found out like the next day. So. What would happen, or has it happened, that someone like Bob Mankoff or, or Emma Allen wants to edit something to make it funnier? Uh, do they come, come back to you and say, well, can you redo this like that? That's happened to me one time. I mean, in all the years I've been there. It's usually more like yes or no. If it's a no, it's a no. If, if it's, it's a, a yeah, yes. and then you have a chance to rework it. I mean, that's the thing. You know, I resubmit. Everybody does. It's not a big secret anymore. No, it's, it's you know, that's part of the whole thing because it is this weekly thing. And sometimes, you know, they might not be in the mood to see a cartoon about a, a toaster. Or maybe they already bought a toaster cartoon from somebody that week. But, you know, you can take it home and then, like, in another six months or something, maybe you'll look at it and you'll see a way to make it funnier, you know? I do that all the time. You did a very serious one uh, about your parents. Uh, was that different from creating these others? That was a different sort of project. Do you feel yourself falling more into memoir these days then? I like the book form. I don't know if I'll do, I don't know, you know. I mean, I know the, the book I'm working on now will be sort of memoirish and also sort of not memoirish. But I do like the book form. It's different from doing like a cartoon. You know, you get an idea, you draw it, hopefully they buy it, they publish it, it's done, it's over. And a book is more of a long-term sort of thing, and, and it's harder in a lot of ways because you do, I mean, at least for me, you know, there's a lot of, I have to follow something, a path sometimes, which seems like a good idea at the time, and then I realize, uh, uh-uh, uh dead end, you know, and then it's like all that work is like for nothing. But eventually with the book... You'll come to a conclusion. Hopefully, hopefully. Well, you know, I mean, I've only written two sort of book lane things. They take a while, you know. I mean, the, my parents' book came out in 2014. This came out in this year, 2017. And, you know, who knows when the next one will come out. <laughs> they take a while. And you have pretty much uh, at least one or two cartoons in pretty much every New Yorker these days. You know, it goes on streaks. That's the way it is. You know, I'll appear every week for like five weeks and then, you know, four weeks go by and I'm not in it and I don't know what's wrong and then I'll start appearing again. That's the way it's always been. So you don't really know until it comes into your hands if you're there. Right, right. And even when they say we need it right away for an A issue thing, sometimes at the last minute something else happens and then it's not there. So, yeah, I don't really know. But you know you're going to eventually have something in there. 
Uh, I don't know that. No. <laughs> you know, I'm always, uh, I'm not, I'm, I, you know, not not that secure of a person. <laughs> well, Roz Chass, before we run out of time, one final question. Are there any other projects beside the next book and just doing the cartoons that you have coming up? I always have like a lot of projects. I've been working right now with a friend of mine. We, we both recently picked up the ukulele. So we're like, heavily involved with ukulele doings right now and uh, hoping to do some sort of thing with that. In fact, we did a New Yorker podcast about our completely fictitious ukulele band back in the 60s when we were supposed to play at Woodstock, but we missed our slot because her mother called. And by the time she got off the phone, you know, we missed our slot. That, that was it. That was it. But then, you know, we went back on the road but it was complicated because I didn't know how to drive and, you know, I had to take a lot of, you know, Valium and that was not good. And then we were in rehab and, you know, just this totally ridiculous backstory. So we're working, we're working on that. But the ukulele is definitely taking up a lot of my time. Just as searching for, um, what is it, matchbooks. Oh, yeah, the Japanese matchbooks phase. I still do that. It's so much fun. You know, especially because I don't have to own them. It's just images, you know. And when you have collections of something that, that they don't even exist in reality, that's like the best kind of collection to have. You don't have to dust them. And your kids won't have to throw them away. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.